least, um, by creating this religious um, amalgam that sort of today would be represented by those coexist bumper stickers that you've probably seen, where each letter in coexist, and, and there are a lot of different versions of it, but they basically represent the various world systems of belief. And so the C is usually the Muslim crescent moon. Um, the T would be the cross, and the X becomes the star of David. And, and then depending on the version, most of the other world religions, including atheism and the worship of Mother Nature and everything, are somehow represented. So the Antichrist, in a brilliant move, brings peace by just saying, let's just all get together. We all worship the same spirit. We're spiritual. We don't need to be religious, we're just spiritual. That mentality is, is huge today across the world. A sentiment that says, let's just get along. Let's forget those things that make us different and let's gravitate toward those things that make us the same. And so by, by bringing the religions together into one religion and then by getting the loyalty of that religion and support, it carries him a long way. Now, in the middle of the tribulation period, he bails on them because now he wants to be God. And so in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist, as we've talked about and seen, actually defies everything that is holy to religion. And he, he goes in and declares himself to be God there in the temple in Jerusalem. And the false prophet tells everyone, you need to worship him. So basically, that half of church-state cooperation, the church half, basically ends in the middle of the tribulation period. And then it just becomes a political and economic entity. Now, collectively, that religion and that political economic system collectively is identified as Babylon in different ways. But here in chapter 17, you're dealing with the religious portion of future mystery Babylon. And in chapter 18, you'll be dealing more with the political and economic half of this mess that is called Babylon. Now, why is it called Babylon? Babylon was a city that, well, Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild it. Um, but there's not much there right now. Saddam Hussein got a bit derailed. But it's the city from which every kind of gross, sinful, wrong thing came from, and it exists there in Iraq. Every false religion traces itself back to Babylonian religions in one way or another. Every evil political and economic system also likely from there as well. Um, Babylon comes from, well, remember the very first um, resistance to God really came at the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis. And they decided to build what was most likely a ziggurat, which was a building that was built in order to worship the stars. They would build a tower and on the top they would put the uh, signs of the zodiac. And so this is where Babylonian mystery religions all came about. Now, um, religiously from Babylon, all of this kind of went forth from, there was a guy named Nimrod who was 
the, the Babylonian leader who was directing things in the Tower of Babel incident where God finally had to wipe them out. He had a wife named Semiramis, and Semiramis had a child named Tammuz. Now, Semiramis told everyone that Tammuz was actually a virgin-born child, that Nimrod had been out busy doing what he was doing, and somehow she mysteriously was impregnated. And at, later on, Tammuz was said to have even died and risen from the dead. It was a satanic origination to make fun of and to duplicate that which would one day happen in, in uh, Jesus Christ. But out of all that, and, and the Tammuz in the um, Chaldean area, and, in, and especially down into the Canaanite area where, the, where Israel is, Tammuz was known as Baal. And so in the Old Testament, when you read about Baal worship, you're reading about this Babylonian mystery cult. Now, maybe none of this do you even care about, but I want to give you this background so that it'll kind of make sense to you. And so all false religions combining together to form a religious entity that's in partnership with an evil political entity, and that's what basically is driving things during the tribulation period. Now, with that background, let's look at chapter 17. And there are some things in here that I'm not sure what they mean. I know what everyone says they could mean. But what I want to focus on ultimately today is there are some things in here that I know what they mean. And they are very clear. And those involve the idea of how you can beat Babylon, how the beast is ultimately defeated. And so we'll settle there eventually. But verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, that's John, saying to me, Come here, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. False religion is often referred to as fornication spiritually. And so what the angel is saying to John is, you've seen the destruction. You saw it in the last chapter. Now let me give you a little bit of insight into all that was actually destroyed. And he says, there is this sleazy woman who is a part of the corruption that happens in the world. So he carried me away in the spirit. So he actually transformed him out into the wilderness. And John saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So there's this woman who's dressed up with the array of royalty combined with all sorts of fancy, sparkly sort of things that would be this combination of royalty and sleaziness. And she's riding a beast, and she's, and she's against 
the believers in Jesus Christ. She's a part of that which would want to destroy them. And in those days, a prostitute would wear a headband that had her name across it. And her name is Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So she must have also had a really big head in order for all of that to fit. <laughs> but, but here you have this image of this disgusting woman riding on the beast, riding on a monster, scarlet beast. And, you know, we already know who the beast is because it says that he had seven heads and ten horns. And back in chapter 13, that's the description of the beast that becomes the world leader or as we usually refer to him as the Antichrist. So you have this image, here she comes. And John was amazed. He's like, wow, this is weird. Who is this woman who's riding on this monster that looks familiar. But the angel, verse 7, said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. That's not a real clear explanation. He goes, well, let me explain this. The beast is, he was and he isn't, and then he is. <laughs> and he's going to hell. So, and he came from hell. Okay, uh, can you give me a little more? Now, People, we know who the beast is because he's been identified in chapter 13. But understanding exactly what this he was and he wasn't and he was, um, there are a couple of different schools of thought. Some people would say that this is a reference to the fact that he rises up as the, as the ultimate Roman emperor in a revived Roman empire. Now, we know from the book of Daniel that this last ruler, who's also called the little horn, does come forth as somebody who takes over the revival of a Roman empire uh, and to become the emperor of this revived Roman empire. And so to say that it used to be, and it's not now, but it will be, would fit with that. Um, we've also seen in Revelation how when the Antichrist arises to power, and he begins to um, be appreciated, but times are really difficult. At some point, he gets a, a mortal head wound, somebody probably in an assassination attempt, and it looks like he's going to die, it looks like he dies, but all of a sudden Satan comes down and gives him this miraculous recovery, and he, he arises victorious from that. And I don't believe that he actually dies and raises from the dead, but they want to make it look like that. So he just makes a, a, a marvelous recovery from this head wound that he has. And that's probably what it's referring to because it says people will marvel at it. And it's like, yeah, remember him? He was, and then he wasn't, and then he was again. And so because of some of the other things in the chapter, that's the way I lean on what he's talking about. But anyway, he's defining the beast, and it's interesting. Everybody's amazed by him except for 
the people whose names are written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. They can see this for what it is. The book of life, that place where people have put their faith in Jesus Christ, their names are there. And one day, the admittance to heaven and the, and the verification of a relationship with God is determined by whether or not your name is in the book of life. So this is somewhere where you want your name. And we'll talk about it later, but this is amazing to think about that your name, if you're a believer in Jesus, your name was put in that book before the world was ever made. Um, man, that blows my mind. Um, I like thinking about it. Um, I, I appreciate it. I don't particularly want to argue with people about it. I'm, it's just the way it is. And we see that that's the first clue as to how you can see through this, this weird um, worldwide plot that happens during the tribulation period. If your name is in the book of life, you will look at his magic and just go, I'm not buying it. I'm not, I'm not going for that at all. But, verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now at this point, a lot of people have concluded that this one world religion or this, this um, you know, religious amalgamation is actually just to be identified with the Roman Catholic Church. Because the city of Rome is said to sit on seven hills, and so they would say clearly, hey, this is simply Catholicism during the tribulation period. Now, there are a couple of reasons why I don't totally buy into that. Um, for one thing, Rome is seven little hills. It's not mountains, and the word here means mountains. But also, you'll see in the next verse, these seven mountains are actually seven kingdoms or kings, and so uh, that's not what he's saying. But people wonder, okay, where does this happen? Is Mystery Babylon actually in Babylon, or is it in Rome? Because there seems to be kind of a mixture of both the religious and the political headquarters of this movement. If it's a revival of the Roman Empire, and if it's this world religion, it seems like all of that would fit coming from Rome. But it states Babylon. So if Babylon is at one point rebuilt, Babylon, it would be ironic because it was the source of life. The Garden of Eden was there. Civilization came forth from there as well as sin and false religions. Um, I don't think we need to specifically emphasize the um, geography of the whole thing because for one thing, nowadays, location doesn't matter as much as it once did. To have a one-world religion and a one-world government, it doesn't necessarily be, have to be featured at a particular place. Um, so I don't even think that's a, a major concern. And by the way, um, this is certainly much more than Catholicism. Now, you'd think it would include Catholicism, certainly. But remember, there are a lot of people who are Catholics who have also put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those people will be removed in the rapture of the church, and others of them will get saved once they see the truth. So the people, Catholics who have not accepted Jesus Christ will be included in this group, and they certainly have a lot of wealth, 
Um, and so that would kind of make sense, but it would also include every other world religion, including Islam, Eastern Orthodoxy, Protestantism, and every cult and everything that exists are all kind of lumped together. Um, but there are people who will just identify this as Rome. There was a book years ago written by a guy named Alexander Hislop um, called The Two Babylons that, that really promotes this as a way of partly attacking the Catholic Church. Dave Hunt wrote a book called The Woman Rides a Beast that basically takes that view as well. I think that view is unnecessarily narrow. This is a worldwide religion that includes everyone who rejects Jesus Christ. But again, it says here that she's, right, she's got those seven heads or seven mountains on which she sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Now, there are some people who see these seven kings as actually being literally seven rulers. And they go back to a series of Roman emperors, and there were more than seven of them, so they, they picked the prominent ones, and then they would say there's, there was five, and then there's one who is, which is at the time of this writing, would be Diocletian, and then there's one who's coming to complete it, the seventh, who would be the Antichrist, who becomes this seventh Roman emperor. And then to confuse it, it goes on to say, He's the seventh, and he's also the eighth, which would probably reference the fact that he was in office twice, once before his head injury and once afterwards. But at any rate, now there are other people who would see this whole thing as just being a progression of world uh, empires, and I tend to lean towards this one. It seems a little less forced. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel interpreted um, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he sees a future of the world that starts with the Babylonian Empire. And there was a gold head which spoke of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And then that went down into the chest and two arms that represented the Medo-Persian Empire that would take over after Babylon, down into the torso, which would represent the Greek Empire, the legs, which represented then the Roman Empire that came about, and then those feet with ten toes would be the revival of the Roman Empire in the future. So there is a precedent for those to be mentioned, but there aren't seven of them. And so to make them five plus one plus one plus one, you, you then take other great civilizations and world powers who basically ran the known world when they were in their prime. So you end up with Egypt, you have Assyria, then Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, then the second revival of the Roman Empire, and then the Antichrist after he uh, comes back to power is the eighth. So are you totally confused? <laughs> anyway, I don't care. I'm just wanting to get through this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's interesting. And whichever interpretation is correct, here's what the deal is. The beast is there with the woman, and he's only going to continue a short time. And so, and he's going to hell, verse 11 again. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings, again, that was prophesied by Daniel, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour, just a short time, as kings with the beast. Now, I don't think these are 
the 10 nations of the European common market or whatever, because the EU has many more nations than that. I think these are 10 kings that even as it says, you don't even know who they are. The beast is the one who puts them into power. So when he unites the world, he picks 10 guys who can help represent him. And so you would expect to happen at this point, this one world government, one world religion, all directed by the beast in conjunction with the false prophet and with Satan himself. And so you've got him in charge and you have 10 kings underneath him. Chronologically, they came forth from powers from the past, but at that time, they're divided among 10 regions in the world. And in, chapter, in verse 13, he says, these are of one mind, they cooperate, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So these guys are unified with the beast as their boss. Verse 14, these will make war with the lamb. Christians are their enemy. Jesus is their enemy. And the lamb will overcome them. That's what happens when he destroys them at the battle of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. The lamb overcomes them for he is Lord of lords and King of kings and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Ultimately, we coming with Christ at the end of the tribulation period, we get the victory over this whole evil system that happens. And it's because we are there with him, and we'll come back to that verse in a few minutes. Then he said to me, the waters that you saw where this harlot was sitting are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, people of all nationalities, people of all languages. She is hovering over all of them. She has managed to unify all of them spiritually in a way that the beast has unified them politically. And, and the ten horns, which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. Ultimately, that church and state union, that's always disastrous. It never works to take spirituality and political intrigue and put them together. You know, often we think, boy, if we could just get enough Christians to vote, we could get Christians in office, we could once again be in a Christian nation, we think, wouldn't that be awesome? Historically, that's never worked out well. Whether in the era of Constantine, whether it's official church states that existed throughout, sounds like a good idea. But, as Lord Acton said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as a result, this isn't a good idea. I personally believe that when we are, and I, and I defend Christians getting involved in, in politics as citizens, but let's keep the two distinct and separate. Here, they join them all together, and it's like, yeah, look, we're all alike. But eventually, politics and religion just do not mix. And so at some point, these kings are fed up with this church, if you can call it that, and they get sick of her. Now, if you think that, I mean, I think most of the people in this room, for instance, are Christians, are professing people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now look around the room for just a moment and imagine if the people that you see here we're actually running the world. Would you even, do you even see anyone here that you would vote for? I mean, 
I'm not sure I do. So it's just a bad mix. But, but he says, the ten horns hated the harlot, and they make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. They reject her completely. And it says, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose that they would be of one mind and give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So, and that's a real mystery too. How can it be that these 10 kings who end up getting mad at this world religion and destroying it, God is actually working in all of that. He is putting it in their hearts. Now, for us, this is difficult to grasp. In fact, the way that the Bible teaches that God's hand is in everything and that he is sovereign, that's a difficult concept for us to understand. Because we tend to think, look, either people are in charge and they are utilizing their own free will, in which case, if, if man has free will, then the future has to be open, has to be undetermined in order for man to be free. On the other hand, you go, but if God is sovereign and he is behind everything that happens, he must be responsible for everything and people's choices don't make any sense at all. Now, if you choose one of those or the other, it will put you in a camp of being either in openness theology or loose Arminianism, or on the other hand, of being an extreme Calvinist. Because logically seems like either we are determining the future or God is determining the future, but biblically it is not an either or proposition. God is able to do what he plans to do and yet people can do what they want and are held accountable and responsible for what they do. If that's a problem for you, um, then you can pick one of the extremes and be really comfortable, or you can believe everything that the Bible says and just go, wow. And I choose to do that. I just choose to go, wow, God, you're amazing. But God is involved in all of this, and the woman, the great city, the one who is religiously pulling this stuff together and working with the Antichrist, reigning over the kings of the earth, she ends up being destroyed by the political system. Now, how this probably happens is that the first half of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years, is a time when the Antichrist uses religion in order to ascend to power. And so he is seen as riding the beast. He makes peace by just telling everybody, why don't we all just put our beliefs together and let's appreciate each other and let's coexist. And it sounds good to a world without Christians because everyone other than Christians doesn't have a real fundamental basis for what they believe. And so to be told, hey, we're all just basically the same, they're good with that. All the cult leaders, all the religious leaders and everything, and they're good with that. And that serves as being, in a sense, the opiate of the people by Antichrist coming to power and people go, but wait a minute, do we want one guy to have this much power? And they go, look it, he's a believer. He's somebody who's really good spiritually. And so we'll go for that. But what happens as things get worse, now the Antichrist can't 
take responsibility for what's going on because he won't be reelected. And so in, an, in, in a desire to continue to hang on to his power, he blames everything on religion. He goes, you know what? This has been a mistake. Now, at this time, this one world religion is worshiping at a temple in Jerusalem, and they're going to Mecca, and they're, do, you know, they're doing it all. Well, now he steps in and he defiles the place that is the holiest place to every religion, that place on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And he goes into the temple and he does what's called the abomination of desolation. He corrupts the place and he declares himself to be God. At this point, those 10 leaders go, yeah, we're sick of religion too. And so they devour religion. They do away with it. They punish it. They blame it. And now for the rest of the tribulation period, it's all about this triunity of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself. And so that's what you kind of see unfolding here. Chapter 17 is primarily that which happens in the first half of the tribulation. It's what makes all of this possible the union of government and church together. Everyone who is a person of faith, and even everyone who doesn't have faith, you can play too. We're all together, we're all spiritual. But that only takes us so long. And finally, that compromising, adulterous church is destroyed probably around the middle of the tribulation period. The political and economic entity continues, which is why the rest of Babylon is dealt with in chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. Now, this is what's going to happen in the future. You can be assured of that. But the question is, how about now? What does this have to do with us? Do we just look at it as a cool story of what's going to happen? Or does this have application to us? Now, I don't believe that the Antichrist is someone who is in power today. I just don't see anyone who is in power today who could pull this off. But I see situations happening in the world that will certainly demand someone to step up and try to solve it all. Now, I also don't see that all religions are together today. But I see major attempts by a whole lot of people to bring about an ecumenical union between all religions. You constantly hear, we are all worshiping the same God. And you can worship him or her or them or it in any way that you want, but let's just all find what we agree on and be unified. That is the power of Babylonian religion. That's the spirit of Babylon. That's the spirit that will take over all of spiritual life in the future. And we see it happening today in a major way. We see the political system working toward let's all get together. So now when we want to go bomb somebody, we don't just bomb them. We get a bunch of our friends to do it too. And we're looking for cooperation. We're like, oh no, we didn't do that. NATO did it, United Nations did it, our allies did it. See, all of these things that are going to take place, it's being set up now. You're looking at what's happening in our world, and you see, wow, this is actually coming. But here's the real point, and here's the important thing to consider in all of this. 
How do you beat Babylon? As the beast is coming to power, as his, as his influence is becoming just overwhelming, as we look at what he is doing and what he is driving, and you go, whoa, this is inevitable. What in the world can we do? Let me remind you, the beast is going to be defeated by the lamb. And we, who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, are a part of that victory. And although when that victory happens, it'll be when we return with Jesus Christ before the millennium to see it happen, the truth is there are victories that are being won in our lives every single day when we respond as he calls us to respond. Because the beast, the formula is the same. The way he will be defeated is the way that he is defeated now. Victory over Babylon can happen in your life and in mine. And the key, I think, is there in verse 14. Because the ones who overcome Babylon and the beast, the ones who are understanding that the Lamb is King of kings and Lord of lords, they're described with three descriptive terms there that are all important. They are the ones who are called, they are the ones who are chosen, and they are the ones who are faithful. That word for called is a word that means to be invited. It's that someone says, hey, you want to do this? You're being invited to something. Now, Jesus Christ Ever since he gave his life for us and rose from the dead, he has been inviting. And make no mistake about it, any one of you who have ever heard someone invite you to receive Jesus Christ is a part of these people who are called. Those who respond to the invitation. Now, Jesus told several parables talking about this, and one of the things that he talked about is many are called, but few are chosen, and we'll get to that in a minute. But the invitation has gone out. He is saying, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So if you've never heard that before, I can declare it to you today that you personally are receiving an invitation to give your life to Jesus Christ, to receive him, to come into a relationship with him. And that is the key to defeating that which is destroying this world. Victory comes at first as you respond to God's call. So he is inviting you. Every one of us came to him because we were invited. Now, we also get that great privilege of inviting people, of being the ones to communicate that. No greater privilege in the world than to invite someone to come to Jesus, to defeat that which is destroying the world, and to enter into a relationship with a God who, who loves us. It's one of the reasons we get excited when a harvest crusade is coming, because there are little things and you can give it to somebody and invite them to come and hear the gospel. It's one of the reasons why I encourage people, hey, you have a friend, invite them to come to church. We're always going to tell you that God is inviting you to become one of his children. But that's where it starts. Victory starts with the calling, the invitation. But it doesn't stop there because they are not only called, they are chosen. Again, a whole lot more people, according to Jesus, are called than what are chosen. 
That word for chosen, the Greek word, is the word from which we get our word election. It means that when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you discover that he chose you personally. And as we've seen earlier with the book of life, he chose you before you ever existed, before the world ever existed. He saw you, he knew you, he loved you, he chose you. Now, how do you figure out if you're chosen? You respond to the call. Now, again, this isn't an easy concept to understand because I look at it and I go, wait a minute. If my name was written in the book of life and he chose me before I was even born, then why do I even need to respond? Why do I need to accept the invitation? Why is that even a, a factor? Because he, if he chose me and I'm chosen, I'm saved. If he didn't choose me, I can't get saved. So doesn't this just make it all kind of silly? And Christians have been totally divided around this concept of how do we understand and define divine election, the fact that he chose us. I haven't solved that. I will not water my faith down to where what I decide doesn't matter, that me coming to Jesus doesn't matter, and I'm just going to go, yeah, I'm just like a robot. He just, you know, he made people, and he goes, that one's going to heaven, that one's going to hell, that one's going to heaven, that one's going to hell. I can't understand that. The Bible holds me responsible for my own decision, and I believe that man has free choice. But I also believe that my name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, because the Bible says that. I also believe that he chose me. Now, I can do one of two things. I can either argue about that or try to figure it out and bring it into sync with my understanding of reality, or I can just go, that is cool. I don't get it, but he picked me. He chose me. And when he invited me and I responded, I found out, wow, this goes all the way back to creation. Now, if you're here today and you're going, I don't think I like that. That sounds too deterministic. That doesn't seem fair. That If some people are chosen, then I guess others aren't. Well, yeah, the people who reject the invitation are people who aren't chosen. You go, well, wait a minute. I mean, what if I'm not chosen? Well, why don't you respond to the invitation and you'll find out. If you respond to the invitation, you'll prove that you were chosen. But you go, yeah, but I don't even know if I want to be chosen. Well, then what's your gripe? If you're... <laughs> If you don't want to be chosen, don't respond to the invitation and go to hell. That's fine. You can do that. But the truth is, whether or not it makes sense or not, his invitation goes out to all. Let he that is a thirst come. Let him taste of the water of life freely. Whosoever will can do that. There's the old hymn that says, Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. And so he's inviting you, and if you receive that, you'll find out you were chosen. If you reject that, yeah, you weren't chosen. But it's your fault because the invitation went to you. And so hearing the invitation, responding to it, and discovering that you're chosen then results in faithfulness. 
It's living in conjunction with that. It's living in a way that proves that you have believed in him. Now again, this faithfulness doesn't happen automatically. Faithfulness involves a response to a call and a choice that God has made. But we respond by acting consistently with what he has told us. Now your faithfulness doesn't save you, but your faithfulness will show whether or not you were saved. Because when you respond to the invitation and you discover that you are chosen, chosen people walk in faithfulness. They believe and it changes their life and it makes a difference. Now you go, well, wait a minute. I, I like the invitation and uh, I want to believe I'm chosen, but I don't want to be faithful. I want to do whatever I want to do. Guess you're not chosen. It goes all together. You'll lose to the beast. But defeating Babylon always involves responding to the invitation that goes out, discovering the beauty of being chosen, and not questioning that, just accepting it and rejoicing in it. And then ultimately walking in faithfulness, not being perfect. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. We had a great Bible study on Wednesday night from Pastor Justin on this, on faith, and that you can't please God without it, and faith being that which is the evidence of what we don't see. It was an incredible Bible study. I would encourage you to get the CD of it and listen to it if you weren't here Wednesday. But all of that completes the package. Now, you can scrutinize it, you can question it, you can argue with it, or you can respond to the invitation Discover that you've been chosen personally by God a long time ago and walk in faithfulness. And that's how Babylon is beaten. That's how the devil is defeated. And it's going to happen during the tribulation period, but it's happening every day of our lives in the same way. And I, I love that. I appreciate that. And it's good for me to know how it all ends up because the same thing that wins the battle then wins the battle now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that in the middle of such a dark time in history, John was given these amazing truths of what it takes to beat the enemy, of how we overcome. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are people today who have never responded to your invitation, that they would hear that you are calling. And as they respond to that call to discover the fact that they're special, that they've been special since before they were even created because of today when they would respond to your choice and your invitation. And then, Lord, as we all have the opportunity to live in light of all that, to walk in faithfulness, to complete that triad of that which will obliterate evil, for good, because of you and what you've done. So thank you, Lord, for this truth. Thank you for the fact that we're not going to be there to see it until we show up to mop up at the end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.